Gracious God, let us consider the words of the Apostle Paul this morning that we don't want to be judged by the world. We don't want to be judged by other men. Lord, we don't even want to be judged by ourselves. We want to be judged by you, who is righteous, who is loving, who is merciful, who is patient, who laid down his life for the sheep. So, Lord, this morning, as we consider the judgment of the Lord, um, Lord, help us not to be in a place of self-recrimination, but to stand underneath the grace and mercy of our righteous King and judge who loves us. God, we thank you that you are present here with us this morning. Be with us. Help us to hear and to believe and to trust you again this morning, we pray. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start with a question. This is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer out loud. How many of you have had a temper tantrum this week? Okay. <laughs> or, or you could say maybe thrown a hissy fit. Now, let me talk to the kids first, to the kids. Adults, for the most part, we get to a place in our lives where we can hide our hissy fits. We can hide them pretty well. That's how we can keep a job. That's one way that you keep a job. We might take out our tantrums on close friends. Maybe some of us will rage online to anyone who listens or else read things that make us rage and we don't even join the conversation. We take it out that way. We might vent with a therapist or maybe even a bishop sometimes. Many of us bottle our fits. We are experts at throwing a tantrum all day long without anyone else knowing about it. And we say, well, I'm just being patient. But usually that means we're not being patient, right? So kids, adults throw fits too. It's okay. Temper tantrums are not just for three-year-olds in grocery stores. That's, that's, that's a myth that we need to get rid of most of the time. We, we can be like toddlers. But three-year-olds are often better. They're often better at knowing when they've wronged their mom or their dad. They're better than us adults uh, when they know that they did something that they're not quite sure what they did wrong in the aisles of Kroger, but they, they kind of feel like something's wrong there. And so they might, they might not articulate an apology yet, but they still come to you with maybe like a childish drawing, a peace offering because of the fit that they did earlier, because mom and dad are having a meltdown and it seems to maybe be related to something I did earlier. The adult form of this peace offering is an infamous rom-com, ro romantic comedy trope. The foolish man tries to make up for his thoughtless behavior by buying what? By buying flowers, right? That's, that's sort of the, the trope. I do this all the time, not necessarily buying flowers. So if I'm giving an articulation of my motivations and my life, a charitable, which I hope maybe you'll give me a charitable... Uh, uh, recollection this morning, I can live my entire day thinking about everything except for the, peop except for the people around me. <laughs> Jody, my children, no, no forethought, I'm reactionary to most everything because my head is somewhere else. 
I don't think about caring for my children. I'm not actively thinking about myself, yet I can live most of my days just sort of reflexively living for myself. And most days, I don't go buy flowers as a peace offering, but I, I bring my childish three-year-old drawing to say sorry at the end of the day. I lived my whole day as a fool, honey. Please receive whatever this is. Here, take it. Take it from my hand. I offer it to my wife because I feel bad in the back of my head. I don't know quite know why, but I'm like a child. Or to put it more specifically, for Saturday, I can spend, maybe, may, this may or may not have been my Saturday yesterday, I can spend my Saturday reading, I can be in my own head, I can watch sports, I can go to the gym, I can play chess on my phone, and sometimes, and it didn't happen this Saturday, it uh, didn't happen yesterday, sometimes right before Jody comes home from work, I'll start a load of laundry, or else I'll clean the kitchen, I'll do some kind of childish sort of peace offering at the 11th hour because I, I feel bad that I wasn't thinking about anybody else but myself all day. And here's the, here's the grace of my marriage. Most of the time, Jody comes home with way more grace than I deserve. Thanks be to God. She really does. She, she uh, to use this metaphor, maybe to beat it to death, she hangs my childish attempt at artwork on the refrigerator of her heart. How does that work for you? And she gives me a hug. She gives me a hug. I don't deserve it, but she holds my, my thoughtlessness, which is usually manifest with me being in my head all day, thinking about anything and everything, my anxious heart. She forgives me, and she hugs me. Amos chapter 5, right in the middle of our reading from the Old Testament, verse 22, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Now, at first glance, and maybe my opening illustration will sort of betray what I think when I read things like that, it seems that God isn't as merciful as Jody is. That's what it seems like. The people of God not only bring a peace offering to the Lord, they brought a really good one. It's clear in the text. It's a great offering, a fattened animal. They brought their best. Not, not a $10 bundle of flowers from Aldi. They came to the Lord with beautiful songs, the text says. A four-course meal on the table and two plane tickets to Italy. That's, that's the image here. It's, very, it's a very good offering. But Amos isn't talking about a childlike peace offering. However puny they might be, he's not talking about our feeble attempts at an apology like a toddler. The Lord is not severe. He's not severe to foolish children. The picture is not of someone getting on their knees with a mustard seed of faith and repenting of their sin. Amos isn't addressing that. He's not addressing foolish children, but deceitful, hypocritical adults. Deceitful and hypocritical adults, the image is that of an unfaithful husband actively deceiving his wife with grand gestures and gifts. We can think about some of the worst villains in those rom-coms, right? They're the worst. 
Not a child, but a hypocrite. A hypocrite, not simply an unfaithful spouse who is trying to make up for a great sin with a great peace offering. It's not even really a, a, a genuine offer. He's a deceiver, a hypocrite who thinks that as long as he checks a box, checks a box of giving a good gift to his wife and providing for his family, he can go on actively pursuing every adulterous lust. This is the image. But it's even worse than that. It's not, it's not about husbands and wives. Amos isn't talking about a husband and wife or even a president trying to atone for his sins by giving a bunch of money to the, his people so that they like him better. This isn't a corporation giving a bunch of money to charity to cover up their greed. It's not a president. It's a priest. It's related to holy things. The deceit is not only a deceit against man, it's a deceit against God. And this is the greatest deceit of all. It's the greatest covering of all. Now I want you to imagine the most holy and religious person you can think of. You might close your eyes, you might think of them, you might look next to you or something. I can think of a lot of really holy people here in this room. And, and not a caricature, okay? This is not uh, Collins. This is not Collins from Pride and Prejudice. Not a caricature of a holy man, but a real good Christian. Someone you know deeply. Really think about the best Christian that you know. And now imagine, without your knowledge, completely unknown to you, they have been, been living a lie their entire lives. They have fought and won many holy wars like King David. Or else they have won many souls to the faith like Ravi Zacharias. They have written profound theological works like Karl Barth while at the same time justifying and keeping a mistress for decades and decades. But it's not just big names, and it's in particular, it's not specifically big names. Many have taught and discipled countless people in true faith. In the true faith, and the whole time they rationalize their double life. They're, they're a horcrux, if you're a Harry Potter nerd, of a divided soul. They're split in two. As long as I give a lot of money to the church, as long as I preach a good sermon on Sunday, as long as I bring a fattened calf as a peace offering, as long as I go up into the assembly singing theologically rich songs with all the true worshipers of God in Jerusalem, I'm not like those hypocrites that worship up in Samaria, those idol worshipers on those foreign hills. That's what God wants. He just wants me to have a contrite heart. I'm not justified by my works. I'm not justified by my works. My God is a God of grace, not condemnation. He doesn't care if I lie all day long because he's a God of grace. As long as I have a peace offering at the end of the day, this is the person. This is who Amos is addressing. Great offerings, great worship, great theology, therefore I'm okay. This isn't childlike foolishness. It's a grown-up deceit. It's a, it's a grown-up lie upon a lie to cover myself. 
And this single woe of Amos chapter 5 is expanded by our Lord Jesus with seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you hypocrites. This is right after what Father Timothy preached last week in Matthew 23. Woe to you hypocrites. Woe to you blind guides. Woe to you priests. Woe to you who baptize your sin with ministry. Woe to you who bring fattened tithes and you have no mercy. Woe to you. Woe to you. Seven woes spoken by God. By Jesus, by God the Son, not to his childish disciples in particular, not in this moment. Jesus aims his woes at the most religious person you can imagine. Again, the best person you can imagine, not a caricature. At the one who not only lives a double life, but he justifies his double life with good theology. This is a more severe judgment than those who, as John Calvin says, who are openly pious and wicked. So the judgment here at the end of the gospel is even, it's even stronger than the greatest devil. The judgment is more severe than the greatest devil or else the greatest pagan that you can imagine. Adolf Hitler, I don't know who you can think of. Think of the the worst, worst person on the far end of the scale, Jesus' judgment is more severe, Calvin says, to these, he goes on to say, the despisers of God. It's more severe than the despisers of God, how stupid soever they may be. So the worst sinner you can imagine, it's more severe than that. They do not, they do not yet excuse their vices. So the worst sinner, the worst despiser of God, they are stupid. They are stupid, Calvin says, but they're not yet making excuses. They're not making excuses. But hypocrites, Calvin says, seek ever to draw God into the quarrel. And I use the language of baptizing my hidden sins with my ministry. They draw God into the quarrel. And they have their veils to cover their wickedness. So let me say it again, just so you hear it. Amos isn't rebuking those of us who have childlike or else tender consciences. Another way to say that, he isn't rebuking a simple mustard seed-like faith. Small faith. Do you feel like you have small faith when you come to texts like this? That's okay. That's okay. That's not what he's rebuking. One of the great dangers when we come to final judgment in times or else prophetic texts like this is that everyone in the room who needs to hear a sharp rebuke doesn't hear it. <laughs> Let me say that again. Everyone who needs to feel the point of this spear doesn't hear it. People like me, in other words. Very often the ones who need to listen are the theologically deep people. Those who only ever pray in public because they want everyone to see them. Those who actively justify a secret addiction and it doesn't matter what it is by doing more, by giving more money or doing something like that. Those who love the place of honor, as Father Timothy talked about last week, who want to be esteemed with praise as one who has great theology, to be honored as a father or a rabbi or a teacher. 
And all too often, theologically sophisticated people hear a prophetic text like this, and they say after the service, great sermon, pastor. Man, that was good theology. Mm. And then I, I want to respond, was that really a great sermon? I don't know how you could say that. The truth of the sermon, Lord willing, by his grace is great. It's true. But this text is terrible. It's terrible for the prideful like me. Some of us are like that. But most of us here are not like that. I would, I would venture to say that most of you here are not like me. That's why people like this church. Many of you, and this is such a gift, are filled with mercy gifts. You have a tender conscience, not just for other people, but for yourself. God has softened your heart. You're humble, and this is good. You know you're not perfect, but you are godly. You're growing in godliness. You're sensitive to listen, to hear the prophet Amos. You come wanting to sit at the feet of the greatest prophet, Jesus. So to those with tender consciences, I want to encourage you, be sensitive. It's good. It's good to be sensitive, to hear the challenge, but don't despair. Don't get in this cycle of recrimination. I'm just beating myself up. Don't be a hypocrite, but don't languish in self-condemnation because of your childlike peace offerings. Turning to our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, as he is about to be abandoned, he's just about to be abandoned in Gethsemane and given over to false accusations and enter into his passion, he speaks privately to his disciples about the clarity, the clarity the clear-sightedness that he has come to bring into the world. He has come, and he's coming again, to judge between sheep and goats, to make that distinction clear, to clarify what it means to be a tender repenter and what it means to be a hypocritical performer. He's coming to bring clarity. They will all outwardly appear to be holy, Jesus says in our text, whitewashed and clean, virgins. But some will be inwardly washed and others will be whitewashed on the outside and dead on the inside. So like ten virgins who await their bridegroom in the daytime, they will all seem to be pure virgins by everyone in the light of day. But in the dark of night, some will be shown to be foolish and others will be shown to be wise. In Jesus' most famous sermon, so this all points back, and this is, this is, I think, exactly what the gospel writer Matthew is doing. His most famous sermon from Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins, and you guys are familiar with this, if you've been around in the church for just a little bit, he be begins by describing the righteous deeds of God's people like an oil lamp, like a lamp that shines before others. It shines before others. A bright city that shines on a hill in a dark world. We're, we know this language. A light not hidden under a what? A bushel. Yeah, don't hide it. Don't hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. So that's how the sermon starts. 
This is the burning righteousness that Jesus says in that sermon exceeds, this is crazy, it exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And the rest of Jesus' first sermon is not an easy sermon to hear. It's not an easy sermon to hear. He recounts the countless ways that religious people perform for others outwardly and they build great ministries and they receive praise and everyone esteems them as a righteous and thoughtful person, a wise judge. Jesus' most famous sermon ends with two famous words. Do you guys know those words? Lord, Lord. Did we not, you guys know this, you've heard this, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great things in your name? Didn't we all bring our fattened peace offerings and loud praise songs and fantastic sermons? And what is the Lord's response to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. This is the beginning of the gospel. Hear it again at the end. And while they were going to buy oil for their lamps, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Some of those who seemed to be pure went out into the night to buy oil. They went out with flickering lamps seeking to buy oil, but there was no store open to sell it. St. Augustine, commenting on this text, says this, Who are these who sold you oil? They are the ones who sell praises. Go then to those who deal in human praise, as you have been accustomed to doing, but do not expect the wise to give you oil at this crucial moment. It is no wonder that precisely while they were going out to buy, while they were seeking praise from others and found none, while they were seeking persons by whom to be comforted and found none, just then the shut door opened. Just then the bridegroom came and the bride, the church, was glorified then with Christ and all its members gathered together as one. So, maybe that's turning towards an interpretation of the text. What does it mean to be wise in the context of Matthew's gospel, specifically here in Matthew 25? What does it mean to have a bowl full of oil so our lamp will not burn out when nobody is watching. They all fell asleep. They all fell asleep. And in just, just a couple stories later, all the disciples are going to fall asleep too. So it's, you know, the, the, they're all outwardly, they look pious. They're virgins. They're pure. And they all fall asleep. But what is the difference between the wise, this the people who have a full bowl of oil, and those who don't. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, has delayed his return to accomplish something. That's what this text is inviting us to think about. Something that looks pure outwardly, but it's not fake. 
It still looks pure outwardly, but it's not deceitful and hypocritical. It's outwardly and inwardly pure. And here is, here is my main point. He came to give or to fill or to inspire in us the oil of secret holiness. The oil of secret holiness. Do you want to become the kind of person who doesn't hang on every word of praise for a job well done? Do you want to become the kind of person who stops opening Instagram every second to see comments and likes? Or despairs when you don't see those? Do you want to be the kind of person who isn't secretly wasting away in an addiction? to pornography, or alcohol, or the fleeting praise of social media, or esteem, or whatever it is you're addicted to. Jesus invites us to pray. Where? Pray on Sunday mornings. Yes, but not only on Sunday mornings. To pray together in one another's homes, but not only there. To pray with your family, but Not only there, but also to pray alone by yourself. And even there, it is difficult to not make it about yourself. And yet, this is the way he has taught us to train ourselves out of this conceit. Yes, Jesus says, you should tithe. Yes, you should give alms to the poor. But don't make a show of it. Don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. So show mercy in secret, not on social media. Not for the esteem of men. Fast, Jesus says. Do this, but do it in secret. If you don't don't fast, you become the kind of person who is dominated by his desires. In other words, you're an addict. And that's all of us. So he invites us to fast and do this in secret. If you fast to be seen by others, then you will be left outside in the cold night. A lamp burned out by the deceitfulness of praise. The Apostle Paul called the Thessalonians to live with this judgment, with this end in view. That's what this first letter to the Thessalonians is all about. Don't be concerned that Christ has already come back, as some people have said. No, He hasn't. You didn't miss Him. Don't concern yourself trying to figure out when He will come. Nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. He will come, Paul says in this letter, but don't worry about when or how. And he says, I'm writing to you, dear church, so that you might keep, and I'm reading into his letter a little bit, so that you might keep the secret oil of holiness, this bowl So that you can keep your torch or your lamp burning bright. That's why he's writing to them. And our reading from 1 Thessalonians 4 about the coming of the Lord. And I think often when we think about the coming of the Lord, especially with phrases like we will rise to meet him in the air. We're talking about these sorts of things. We think so quickly about spiritual things when we think about this future coming judgment. But Spiritual preparedness for the Apostle Paul is filled with a bunch of real life exhortation. Hear this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just before our reading, starting in verse 1. Finally, 
To summarize all of this theological reflection, brothers, sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, it's your sanctification. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. He says, control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So it's very physical. The exhortation has to do with our bodies. It's not sort of pie in the sky, spiritual escape. Don't sin against your brother, he says, in this matter because the Lord, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Don't disregard what I'm saying to you, he says. Later in chapter 5, he exhorts them. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, love one another more and more. He repeats this phrase over and over again. And to aspire to live quietly. He says to the Thessalonians and to us to live quietly and mind your own affairs as we instructed you. Don't don't do it all out there. It's okay to do it out there. We want to live wisely and purely out in the world, but live quietly. Mind your own affairs as we instructed you, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Just as you are doing. To one degree or another, we are all hypocritical. We are all hypocritical. We're deeply sinful. And sometimes we cover our sins with lies, with deceits, with masks. We hide. We put on a good face in public while we continue to waste away in private. And every one of us must hear. And and hear me. This is good news. We must hear and daily respond to the serious call and immediacy of the gospel. Fill up your quiet moments when nobody is watching with love, Paul says. With acts of mercy, with actions. With control of your body with sexual holiness and honor, working hard in secret, living quietly, minding our own affairs and building one another up in the secret places of our life. This is the exhortation in light of the end. But hear this again, tender consciences, those who like to self-recriminate, to, they want to beat themselves up all the time, don't do this and despair. I want to ask and urge you to be wise and live every moment with quiet acts of piety that are not posted on social media. I want you to do this and at the same time, know that God sees you as a loving father. I see you all the time. As Paul says, I see you doing this, Thessalonians. I see you already doing these things. Be encouraged. Do them more and more, more and more. 
Very often, it's true, we act righteously like a child bringing a peace offering of simple repentance. It's so small and it feels fake sometimes. And that's okay. Be humble like a child. Just come with humility. Don't be a grown-up who pretends that everything is okay when it's not. Do this more and more, more and more. And let me encourage you and build you up this morning just as you do with me. You guys do this to me over and over again. Please do that. It doesn't have to be pride-filling, puffing up to encourage one another in this. The oil of living righteously in secret is precious. This is how St. Augustine describes it. And it is all a gift from the Lord. Here, Augustine, at the end. This oil is the gift of God. We can put oil into our lamps, but we ourselves cannot create the olive. See, I have oil, but did I create the oil? Nope, it is the gift of God. So you have oil. Carry it. Carry it with you. What does it mean to carry it with you? To have it within. To have it within where it is pleasing to God. The foolish virgins who brought no oil with them wish to please a human audience by that abstinence of theirs by which they are called virgins. And by their good works when they seem to carry lamps, but they do not. But wishing to please human spectators, doing praiseworthy works, they forget to carry with them the necessary oil. What does it mean to carry it with you? To have it within, in the quiet places, in the secret places, and this is pleasing to God. So carry the necessary oil of holiness within you before our God in secret and before the world and delight in Jesus, the author and, the author and perfecter of our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.